117. Romans 117. Declared righteous by faith. This, of course, is a hinge verse, the Romans 117, along with its partner 116. And everything that has come before in the book of Romans um, leads up to this. Everything that comes after in the book of Romans helps to explain what Paul introduces in this verse. This is an extremely important set of verses, and these are, of course, the verses that we said before. Cause Martin Luther to rethink his view of salvation and actually begin the Protestant Reformation. So before we get into Romans 1, 16 and 17, one last time I'd like to go through uh, the... Um, I'd like for us to read through the first verses of the, uh, of the chapter, uh, because once we get to verse 17, we finish the introduction to Romans. It's a rather long introduction. Actually, verses 1 through 7 are a salutation, and the verses 8 through 17 form the last part of the introduction. So read along with me so we can catch everybody up in case you haven't been here. The verse 1 says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith, or the obedience which equals faith, among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul's way of saying, dear folks at the church at Rome, <laughs> but he did it in a rather verbose way, full of theology. Now, in verse 8, he begins the actual introduction to the letter. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established or strengthened. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you, and have been prevented thus far, in order that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And now our passage. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. In chapter 1, verse 16, Paul, having confessed his fervent desire to preach the gospel at Rome, goes on to give a reason for his zeal. Uh, he has no sense of reserve about the mission that he's on. He's unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's ready to challenge the philosophies and the religions that were in, in effect in Rome because he knows, on the basis of his experience in the eastern part of the empire, that God's power at work in the proclamation of the good news is able to transform lives. 
when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, he's introduced the concept of salvation by grace through faith into this epistle. Now, that was foreign to the people that were being raised under Judaism. For, for Judaism was prone to think of following a set of man-made regulations mixed with the Mosaic Law as being powerful. But that's not affirmed in Scripture. What Paul says is the gospel is the power of God. And remember, early on in this epistle, Paul has established that the way he's using this term gospel, it means not only this information, but Jesus Christ himself as a person, and also what Jesus Christ did. That's the person and work of Jesus Christ or what is powerful. Not a man-made set of rules mixed with some God-made rules. And that's what we do sometimes. Very few folks that I know of set up strictly a man-made set of rules. They always throw in a little biblical truth, or at least a little biblical terminology to make it sound good. And when you get these sects and cults together, they'll always talk about Jesus Christ, but then you need to talk to them about the Jesus Christ they're speaking of. Is it the Jesus Christ of the Bible? They'll use terms like God, but is it the God of the Bible that they're speaking about? So Paul is telling them here that, that Judaism might have thought that they were powerful because they kept a set of man-made rules. Now, believe me, I'm not knocking obedience. We've been talking about that in some of our other studies. Certainly, we need to be faithfully obedient. But what Paul's talking about in Judaism is, is this false obedience to a man-made set of rules and thinking that you're very religious or spiritual because of that. He said, that's not powerful at all. The gospel is what is powerful. The Greek word that is translated power here is dunamis. And you might recognize that word. We get the English word dynamite from that. And the context shows that Paul was thinking of the gospel's dynamic, powerful, intrinsic ability to accomplish what God intended for it to accomplish. The gospel is powerful enough to do the job. God has the power, then, to deliver or to save, both physically and spiritually. We see physical examples of God's deliverance in the Old Testament, particularly with David in the Psalms. David's always asking for deliverance or salvation. He's not talking about eternal salvation there. He was saved, apparently, as a young child. But he's talking about rescue from a lion or a tiger or a bear or, or Absalom or, or uh, Saul. But there's also a spiritual deliverance, and that's what we mean as Christians most of the time when we use the word saved. You know, if, if you ask somebody, are you saved, you probably don't mean have you been rescued physically. You could, if, say, a person was walking out of a cancer hospital and they said, well, did they save you? you? You may be talking about their life then, but ordinarily, as Christians, we're talking about the second kind of salvation, eternal salvation, spiritual salvation that we see in Acts 16.31 if... Uh, where Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That has nothing to do with physical salvation. In other words, physical healing. The only reason I bring that up is the fastest segment, of, fastest growing segment of Christianity today believes that it does. And so if we're really truly to be ambassadors for Christ, listen carefully, you've got to know what you're talking about. If you're truly going to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ, you have not only to know what it is you believe, but you need to know why you believe it. Because otherwise, somebody's going to get a hold of you one day, and they're going to say, well, what do you mean you believe in eternal security? Here's a verse that says you can lose your salvation. Now, how are you going to handle that? Do you, do you know not, not only enough theology, but do you know where to find that in the Bible in order to 
defend your view. Not to win an argument with someone, but so that you won't be tossed to and fro like some wave with, with every wind of false doctrine that comes along. Your spiritual life is at stake. So not only do we want to know what it is we believe, we want to know why it is we believe it. Eternal salvation restores people to what they cannot experience because of sin. The gospel, the way Paul puts it to everyone who believes, makes us understand that the gospel doesn't announce that everyone is delivered or everyone is safe because of what Jesus Christ has done. Now, there are some people that believe that. They're called universalists. And they believe because Jesus Christ died for all mankind, then therefore all mankind have been rescued. We had a lady in our church that believed that one time. And she didn't, she didn't feel the need to personally appropriate salvation for herself. And we had a very tearful conversation out in the hall, and I had to tell her, I don't believe that you're saved. I mean, you need to personally appropriate that. So just because Jesus died for all doesn't mean that all are saved. Oh, would it? <laughs> I wish it was that way. But it's not. Now, the, the gospel then, according to verse 16, is only effective for those who believe it. And we said last week, the only exception to that, the only exception being those who can't believe. For example, the mentally retarded or young children that haven't reached the age of accountability. Now, tonight we begin verse 17. We, I say we begin, and actually we studied some of verse 17 two weeks ago when we looked at verse 17, but through the book of Habakkuk. So having understood that material, we'll be able to cover this verse relatively quickly, at least as compared to what we would have been able to cover it had we not already looked at Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Verse 17, speaking of the gospel, for in it, in the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Verse 17 begins with another word, gar, just like verse 16 did. It's G-A-R in Greek. It's F-O-R in English. That's how we translate that word. It means for. And usually, at least in this context, it means because. It's giving a reason for something. And so it expresses the reason that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. In verse 16, when Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, he's explaining the reason that he's eager to come. And this is how Paul's going to do it in the book of Romans, so get used to it. He, goes, he has these long extended thoughts, and he connects them by these little particles, and that's what he's doing here. So he's given a reason. First he gives the reason he's eager to come. Why is he eager to come? Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's powerful. It's powerful enough to do the job. That's why I'm eager to come and preach it to you. Because I've, I've got a product that's worthwhile. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing worse than being a salesman and knowing your product is not effective. You know, then don't you feel kind of dirty and rotten and sleazy when that happens? And, uh, but Paul wasn't like that. I'm not equating being a minister of the gospel with being a salesman. I'm trying to use that as a metaphor. But Paul knew what he had was the truth. And not only did he know that it was the truth, he knew that it was life-saving truth. Not just physically life-saving, but spiritually life-saving. And Paul had the answer, he had the solution to people's problem that was sending them to hell. Now, he didn't originate it, but he knew of it, and he was going to tell everybody that he knew. That's why he was eager to come. He wasn't ashamed of it. And now he's going to tell us that the reason 
in verse 17, this, this reason is that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The verb translated is being revealed is in the present tense, and it's an important biblical term. In, in, in one way, this is like Romans, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's a present tense. I don't know about you, but a lot of times when I quote that verse, I quote it past tense. I guess that's just the way I learned it, and I learned it wrong. And I'll say, but God demonstrated his own love toward us. Well, that's not the way that that is. It's a, it's a, um, it's a present tense verb. The same way here, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, or is being revealed, and it's a present tense, and it's a very important biblical term. This word refers to an uncovering of the intellect of various truths relating to God's purposes. Something has been revealed to you. Something was once unknown, and now it's made known to you. It's, so we would say it's revealed. But here, Paul intends actually a deeper meaning of this term. He means that the gospel is revealed in action and operation. The righteousness of God was to be made manifest with saving effect. Now this is so important for the interpretation of the rest of the epistle. I want to stop and, and go over that again and, and just listen carefully. Uh, there's one aspect to this meaning, to this word that means revealed, and that is just to uncover something. I didn't know something before and now I know it now. It's been revealed to me. And that's an, an aspect that we all can kind of grasp fairly easily. But there's more to the way that Paul's using this word than just now to come into a comprehension of something. What Paul's doing here is he's, he means that the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, is revealed in action and operation. The righteousness of God was to be made manifest with saving effect. So there's power behind this revelation. It's not passive. There's power behind it. So when Paul says the righteousness of God is revealed, he means that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is actively and dynamically brought to bear upon man's sinful condition. It's actively and dynamically brought to bear upon man's sinful condition. It would, this is one way to understand it. In one sense, we didn't know that the gospel was there, and, and now the, the, the page has turned and now we, we see that there is a gospel. But in another sense, when it says it's revealed to us or made manifest to us, it's, it's like having a, a bottle of water with the label turned the other way. I turn it this way and I see it says Kirkland Spring Water. And that's, that is, this, this water bottle has been revealed to me or the, the name has been revealed. But it would be another thing altogether, not altogether, but a deeper meaning to say it's been revealed and now I, I open it and I take a drink from it. See, then it's act actively and dynamically affecting me. So it's not just as though now I say, oh, yeah, there is a gospel, and it was Jesus Christ, and he died on a cross a long time ago. But it, there's more to this than that. And an original Greek reader would have seen that. And that's why I wondered, I've wondered for a long time, why Martin Luther and some of the other reformers, when they read this passage, just woke up and said, wow. Maybe we've been wrong, because the way I read it at first, I mean, just to do a casual reading through here, you just don't see this jump out at you. 
But they weren't reading it in English. Actually, they weren't reading it in German or French either. They were reading it in its original language. And in the original language, it does jump out at you. This is a very powerful, very, very powerful verse. So, once again, it means that the righteousness of God is actively and dynamically brought to bear on man's sinful condition. To use my analogy, if I was thirsty, it would be one thing to see the label of the water bottle. It's another thing to drink some of the water. Okay, and that's having it actively and dynamically being brought to bear upon the thirst. In this case, the gospel is actively and dynamically being brought to bear upon man's sinful condition. This is powerful stuff. By means of the gospel, we don't just come to an understanding of the righteousness of God then, but also the righteousness of God is powerful enough to accomplish our salvation. But it brings us to one of several things that we need to grasp in this passage if we're going to understand the rest of the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation. Uh, the, uh, that's the word for manifest. <laughs> um, um, the book of Romans. What does Paul mean when he refers to the righteousness of God? We use this word righteous, righteous and righteousness all the time. It's, it's kind of like one of the requirements for being a Christian. I think you've got to know that word. You've got to throw it into a sentence at least once or twice a week in order to be considered a good Christian. Some, some righteous behavior or the righteousness, which is a, a quality. But what does Paul mean when he uses this word, the righteousness, or this phrase, the righteousness of God? In the Greek language, it's dikaiosune theu, the righteousness of God. Well, Righteousness is one of God's eternal attributes. Literally, the word dikaios means to be just or to be right. Theologically, it refers to the intrinsic character, intrinsic characteristic of God, wherein he is absolutely right or just and is the ultimate standard of justice, rightness, and goodness. Once again, theologically, the term righteousness of God Theologically, it refers to the intrinsic characteristic of God, wherein he is absolutely just or right, and is the ultimate standard of justice, rightness, and goodness. Don't ever speak of the righteousness of God in one sentence and the unfairness of God in the next. Those two don't go together. If God is righteous, by definition, by biblical definition, he's got to be fair. Otherwise, don't call him righteous. Okay? The Bible has quite a bit to say about God's righteousness. First, righteousness involves true, his true ordinances. We see that in Psalm 19.9, which reads, The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. There's no command, that's what the ordinances means, there's no command in the Bible that's not perfectly fair and perfectly just and perfectly good. Everything that God said for us to do is fair, just, and good. We can never question that. Second, righteousness is the foundation of his throne. Psalm 89, 14, which says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. So righteousness is the foundation of God's throne or his leadership or his rulership. Third, righteousness is the scepter of his kingdom. 
We see that in Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verse 8. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. Righteousness will be the rule of law in your kingdom, is what is being said there. And fourth, the fourth thing the Bible says about righteousness, the righteousness of God. Righteousness does no injustice. I'm going to say that again. Righteousness does no injustice. Because God today, and not just today, but even in the past generation, is accused all the time of being unjust. And you know when he's accused? When we shake our fist, I say we collectively, uh, as, a, as a Christian community, when Christians shake their fist at God and say, why did you let that happen to me? Now there's a way to ask that that could be spiritual, and there's a way to ask it that could be sinful, because you're challenging the fairness of God in the second way. Implying that God shouldn't have let that happen to you. Okay, And that is, when we do that, we are accusing God of being unrighteous or doing injustice. But the fourth principle, righteousness does no injustice. That's from Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 5. The Lord... Within her is righteous, he does, within himself is righteous, he does no wrong. Morning by morning, he dispenses his justice, and every new day, he does not fail. Morning by morning, he dispenses his justice. Zephaniah 3 5. Fifth, righteousness will endure forever. 2 Corinthians 9 9. Righteousness will endure forever. Paul says, As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Sixth, righteous, six, righteousness is the ultimate standard of judgment for the world. According to God, righteousness is the ultimate standard of judgment for the world. That's Acts 17.31. Acts 17.31. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Acts 17.31 The seventh one, righteousness renders to all according to their deeds. Romans 2.6 God will give to each person, person according to what he has done. Romans 2.6 Two more things the Bible says about righteousness are the righteousness of God. The eighth one, righteousness is the basis for every believer's rewards. 2 Timothy 4.8 Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Don't let that slide by you. There's no reason why you, you shouldn't be awarded the crown of righteousness at the judgment seat of Christ. You have no excuse. If you, if you don't, it just means somewhere along the line in your spiritual life you messed up. But you've got the Word of God available to you, and it's, it's a decision of your soul whether you're going to live your life in such a way as, as like John in the book of Revelation. Even so, Lord, come quickly. Now, this is not a verse. This is not a verse that means that every day we wake up and, and we turn on the 
the channel, whichever one it is, listen to all the shows about the rapture, and just focus totally on that aspect of eschatology. That's not what this verse is promising. But this verse is telling us that, that for those who love the Lord Jesus Christ so much because of what they know about him and how that's affected and changed their lives and the way they've applied that to their lives, they love the Lord Jesus Christ so much that you can't wait to see him. One way or the other. One way or the other. And if you were Jesus Christ, wouldn't you want to reward someone who felt that way about you? As opposed to someone who was uh, totally impartial. I'm talking about a believer, one of your kids. I don't care if he comes overnight or not. You know, Like a grown grown child that thanks him. Well, I don't care if mom and dad come. Are they coming or not? No, I don't care if they come or not. You know, As a parent, you wouldn't be really pumped about going. If that's how you thought the kids felt, your grown children. Well... Righteousness is the basis for the believer's reward, 2 Timothy 4.8. And finally, righteousness is revealed in the law of God, Romans 10.5. Righteousness is revealed in the law of God. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. That's Romans 10.5. Those are the things that the Bible says, among others. There are others, but those are nine major things the Bible says about the righteousness of God. But... Since righteousness is a moral absolute, there is a type of righteousness that can also be possessed by creatures. We're told to have righteous behavior, to be holy like he is holy. Um, so how does that work? Righteousness is one of those attributes of God that theologians call communicable. It can be communicated. Hence it is something that, that we should be instructed in. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Righteousness is something that we should seek. Matthew 6, 33, that's part of the Sermon on the Mount. Righteousness is something that we should pursue. 2 Timothy 2, 22. It's something we should thirst after. Matthew 5, 6. It's something we should suffer for. And maybe you're okay with the list up to now. <laughs> but righteousness is something that we should suffer for. Injustice ought to bother you. It ought to. Now, I'm not saying you become a vigilante because it bothers you, or that you take revenge because it bothers you, but the same things that bother God ought to bother the believer. We should suffer. We should be willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. First Peter 3.14, 2 Timothy 3.12. We should submit to righteousness. Romans 10.3. Romans 6.18 says we should be slaves of righteousness. And 1 John 3.7 says we should practice righteousness. So the phrase we're studying, the kaiosune theu, refers to the righteousness of God, which is perfect, consistent, eternal, will never change. But we, too, are commanded these eight things about righteousness. We should be instructed in it. We should seek it. We should pursue it. We should thirst after it. We should submit to it. We should be slaves of it, and we should practice it. Righteousness is an extremely important biblical concept. But in Romans 1.17, Paul is not speaking about the attribute of God's righteousness as such, but rather he's speaking of the status that is given by God to the individual at the moment of faith in Jesus Christ. He's not speaking about God's attribute as such. 
but he's speaking about the status that is given by God to the individual at the moment of faith in Jesus Christ. That is, in grace, through faith, God gives me a right standing before himself. I can be accepted by him because of this right standing. Theologically, this is known as justification. And Paul will speak about that a lot in this book. In justification, when I am justified before God, it means that at the moment that I exercise faith in Christ, I am declared to be righteous. That's what this verse is talking about. Another way that it's put sometimes is that this is the act of God by which God brings people into a a right relationship with himself. Since I butchered that, let me say it again. It's the act of God by which God brings people into a right relationship with himself. It was real popular in the early 1900s to define this act, this God imputing his own righteousness to us, this act of justification, It was popular to define that as just as though I had never sinned. God made me just as though I had never sinned. And that is a a very minimal understanding. It's it's so partial that I'd have to say it's it's a misunderstanding of what the term justification means. Because if I was to say just as though I had never sinned, God made me just as though I had never sinned, that would describe something other than justification. Describe forgiveness of sins, where he wipes the slate clean, but that doesn't describe what's going on in Romans. Romans is not subtraction of sin. It's the addition of God's righteousness to you. That's what justification means. That's what the book of Romans is going to be about and how that event takes place. Because the thing that makes you right before God is not the fact that God has forgiven your sins, per se. The thing that makes you right before God is that God has taken his righteousness, that holy character that we spoke of, his, his, uh, his just, right, and good behavior. He's taken that and imputed it to you. He zapped it on you, if you would prefer a more modern term. And now he declares you righteous. In one, in one second in time, I am unrighteous no matter what good deeds I do. It wouldn't matter if I had a million good deeds. I would still be counted as unrighteous before God. But at the moment you exercise faith, we'll see in the next phrase, at the moment we exercise faith, God walks by you and says, righteous, righteous, righteous. You get the point? Righteous, 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 righteous. And if he doesn't do that, you're not going to heaven. doesn't matter how good you get. The only way you get in is if you've got to have his, you've got to have his righteousness to get in. That's the ticket, if you want to put it in that, in that terminology. So it's not just taking something away, it's adding something. And this is not the last time we'll study this in the book of Romans. So justification is not simply the removal of sin, it is the addition of righteousness. Now notice, for in it, the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And what that phrase means is, again, it it doesn't mean simply that I have now seen what righteousness is. It means that that righteousness has taken effect. This is, Paul, the first time he talks about in this book, this is the first time he mentions that that revelation, that being manifest, means that it's imputed to you. Now, how does that happen? 
And this is where the Reformation began. Paul writes, from faith to faith. In the Greek language, it says, ek pestuos, eis pestin. From faith into faith. This phrase has been a puzzling phrase for commentators, and there have been at least eight credible variations of options that have been proposed for understanding what this means. And I'm not going to mention all of them tonight because I think it will probably add to the confusion rather than clear it up. But basically, if you look closely, the passage is saying this righteousness of God is obtained by faith. Ek pestuos, the from faith, is the means. And eis pestin, to faith, is the goal. So we could put it this way. We obtain the righteousness of God by faith because it was designed for faith. We obtain it by faith because it was designed for faith. That's what Paul means when he says from faith to faith. We obtain it by faith because it was designed for faith. Let me illustrate. My car runs on gasoline because it was designed for gasoline. I wouldn't put diesel fuel in my car because it wasn't designed for diesel fuel. In the same way, the righteousness of God is obtained by faith because it was designed for faith. You see now what Paul's doing here with this phrase, from faith to faith. Now we can begin to see what Luther saw. Because in this passage, it's, it's extremely clear that we're not justified by works, but by faith. To be justified by works would be like putting diesel fuel in a gasoline engine. It wouldn't be effective in accomplishing what you wanted to accomplish, namely transporting yourself down the road. It's not going to work for very long. In the case of the biblical truth, it doesn't work at all. Because this, this whole act of having righteousness imputed to you that was designed to be an act of faith. That's what struck Luther. He'd been attempting to utilize works when the justification process was designed for faith. It's apples and oranges, or even something more separate than that. It's putting, gas, putting diesel fuel in a gasoline engine when you try to put works in and get justification out. That's not the way it was designed. What a revelation that must have been to Martin Luther. Maybe it is to you, too. I don't know. Maybe you're trying to count on your good works to get you to heaven, too. But that ought to be a revelation to you. It's not designed for works. It's designed for faith. What a liberation that must be as well. Man, I can't imagine to be someone who's trying to work their way into heaven. You talk about having some mental problems. You'd have them. How could you go to sleep at night? It would be terrible. I talked to a lady right back there at that table a couple years ago in here. After one of the Wednesday night Bible classes, it was a miracle that she was here in the first place. She didn't even live on this side of town. She lived on the north side of town. She happened to be cutting through Broad Street, going from 610 to 45, saw that there was a Bible study here, and happened to slip in. You know, I made when the class was over, I made the mistake pastors always do, and went back and introduced myself to her and said, uh, you know, did you enjoy the class tonight? And she said, no, I didn't agree with the thing you said. <laughs> always like a good fight, so I said, yeah, so well, 
pray tell, what was it that she didn't agree with? And she didn't, uh, you know, she she didn't agree with this whole idea of, of justification by faith, uh, faith alone, Christ alone, that that there had to be works involved in it. What a tragedy! I, I asked her, "You mean that? You mean I want to understand you?" I, I said, "You mean that if you were to go to sleep tonight, you'd have no absolute assurance that you'd wake up in the and you were to die, you'd have no absolute assurance you could wake up in heaven tomorrow?" And, well, no, I wouldn't. And, and at least she's being honest. Because she never could know if she'd done enough good works to go along with her faith. That's a terrible way to live. Uh, Martin Luther was a head case before he came to faith in Jesus Christ. At least from everything I can read, he was, it was very difficult for him. What a, what a revelation and what incredible liberation of the soul it must be when people first come to the understanding that it's by faith. That Jesus Christ did all the work. And faith is not a work, by the way. It's, it's a responsibility. It's something we exercise. But all the merit goes into who I'm trusting. When you have to ask yourself if you're going to go with the faith plus works thing. And, and again, since we're talking about being good ambassadors for Jesus Christ, a lot of the Christian, so-called Christian community wants to do that. How much good does one have to do then to gain a right standing before God? If you want to add works to it, you know what it makes the work of Jesus Christ on the cross? Irrelevant. And that's blasphemous. The quotation, then, that Paul uses to validate his point, and the specific phrase that inspired Luther was a quotation from the Old Testament. And in my Bible it says, But the righteous man shall live by faith. It's, it, is, it should be set apart in your Bible, probably by all caps, to show you that this is a quotation from Habakkuk. Two weeks ago, we took a look at the context from Habakkuk. And also, we looked at the way that the Greek language wrote this. And if we were to take the, the proper reckoning, uh, rather than the English reckoning of this, we'd, we'd see what struck Luther with this phrase as well. Because it really should be translated, but the one who is righteous by faith will live. The one who is righteous by faith will live. At first glance, in the English, it doesn't appear to be a salvation verse at all. It, it would appear to be more of a sanctification phrase, meaning something like, those who are justified before God will live faithful lives. Do you see that? Just a, a casual rendering in English, but the righteous man shall live by faith. That's what it looks like. The, those who are justified before God will live faithful lives. But that's not how the Reformers took this passage. That's not, not how anybody who reads it in Greek ought to take it. Because the verse actually reads, the one who is justified by faith will live. And that makes sense in the context with Luther too, because otherwise he wouldn't, he wouldn't bring a verse to help make his point that didn't make his point. The one who is justified by faith will live. So in this quotation from the Old Testament, what Paul is doing is he's letting people know that this is not a new idea with me. Didn't just make this up yesterday. This is the same thing that was prevalent in the Old Testament. This was Old Testament theology, as is a lot of the book of Romans. It's Old Testament theology that Paul's preaching to New Testament believers. Salvation was by grace through faith in the Old Testament, just like in the New Testament. There's one criticism that comes up with, of dispensationalists sometimes, and it's a criticism that is really unfair because I only know of a couple of dispensationalists that ever held this. But some, some would say the problem with dispensationalism is that in the Old Testament you believe salvation was by works, and in the New Testament you think it's by faith. That's not true. There may have been a couple knuckleheads that did that, 
But that certainly wasn't the norm. No, salvation was the same in both testaments, in both periods. And that's why Luther brings in, I'm sorry, that's why Paul brings in, and Luther recognized, the quotation from Habakkuk, the one who is justified by faith will live, mean, meaning live eternally. So in these two verses, the theme of the book of Romans is revealed. Everything now that will follow these verses expands upon the truth of these two sentences, verses 16 and 17. We were justified by faith. We will mature in our Christian lives by faith. The life of faith for the believer will include good works and faithful obedience. But never forget, faith, faith is the foundation. Heavenly Father, we are grateful beyond words for the revelation of the book of Romans and what it means to us as believers. Thank you for allowing us to to come to grips with the foundation of our faith. Father, we also, if we do so, we have to come to grips with the fact that we didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it, and that makes us look at you and what you did for us. And Father, as Paul has said, the goal of our instruction is love, and, and I don't see how we can't look at this verse, Father, without coming to love you more because of it and then being motivated to spread that love to other men because of what you've done for us. So, Father, I do pray tonight for all of us that the Holy Spirit would work in our lives, help us to appreciate our so great salvation, help us to understand that we didn't earn it, not in the least, that it was a gift, but it was a gift that, while it's free to us, cost you everything, and I just can't even imagine how we could begin to thank you for it. But, Father, help us, help us in our Christian walk to be motivated by your love, to live a life that would be worthy of the price that was paid for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.